Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is going to be part two of our deep dive into the story of Vito Dumas going around the world, the impossible route. And uh, we left off in Wellington, New Zealand. He had just pulled in after crossing uh, the Indian Ocean and all that and uh, is basically ready to set sail off into the vast unknown stretches of the Pacific. And yeah, it's pretty crazy. I'm really, really enjoying this book. And one one of the things that I think I really like about it is that it's kind of a quick read. Um, That's essentially one of the biggest things that I was trying to do with mine because I know a lot of the old round the world sailing books can be kind of slow. and a little hard to get through unless you're super into them and or you read really fast, I guess. But um, this book, yeah, the chapters are pretty short and it's it's to the point and there's not, you know, there's not these huge dialogues of, of all sorts of stuff. It's it's a pretty just kind of factual sort of account. So I really uh, I have been enjoying it quite a bit. I'm going to forego with all the, uh, you know advertising stuff i'll just say that uh you know you know what we offer and uh you can find all the links in the description of the episode for all that sort of stuff big big thanks though to everybody that supports this show through patreon and uh donations so awesome but uh yeah essentially by the end of january in 1943 Vito takes off and he leaves Wellington and it's it's kind of rip roaring a little bit to get him out of there. And the winds are kind of making it so that he can't actually sail out of the harbor. And so he gets a bit of a tow and then he goes and, and sets up his storm. I think it's his storm jib and then his mizzen. He gets those all set up and then he's kind of untying from the from the toe and essentially he's, he's trying to sort of cut real close to some pier or something like that. And he just smashes into it. He hits like a concrete piling and, uh, cracks the boat. And he says that, you know, it's, it's with a, uh, a violent crack. Um, and he's just like, uh, and he knows he's thinking, he's like, man, I should, I, I should go back in and, and see, make sure this is, it. and he was just like, nah, nah, I'm going to just keep going. I'll, I'll see what it does. Cause remember, I mean, he's on this boat that's, it's taking on, you know, about half gallon or a gallon of water an hour um, and and much more than that during the first passage, you know, when he sprang that plank and everything. And so he's he's sort of used to it. And I still can't get over that in my own head. I mean, I know what it's like to have a boat that's taking on water by the drip uh, you know, from underneath the water line, I know what it's like to take gallons from above the water line. That's for sure. Um, and it's unnerving to open up your bilge and see a bunch of water sloshing around, but to know that it's coming out of some of the planking up near the bow of the boat is, um, I don't know. That's tipping my hat to, to veto on that one, because that's, that's just, um, uh, it's crazy to just keep setting out and going for it without hauling the boat out. That's, I mean, that would have been probably one of the first things I did when I got to Wellington or when I got to Cape town was, was haul the boat and, and fix that plank. But he's a man on a mission. What can I say? He's, uh, he's, he's going for it. And one of the things, even though this is just a solo voyage and it's not some sort of race or anything like that, He is racing the seasons. He's trying to get to certain spots by certain times. Um, You know, in the Pacific, it's going to be essentially the middle of summer down there. And so it's kind of the best time for and and it's kind of interesting. And we'll get into it in a bit. But the summertime and I've heard this from other accounts uh, of the old like clipper ships and stuff like that. But they talk about, you know, you'll typically in the summertime down there get much finer weather as far as calms and the winds aren't just constant like brutal brute force westerlies but at the same time you can get some of the most violent low pressure systems that come out and just absolutely destroy you uh during the summer whereas i guess in the winter time 
it's just more of that constant brutal assault of, you know, gale force winds, but not gale force, you know, force 10, 11, 12 sort of stuff. Um, so it's kind of interesting. And, and like I said, when he, when he finally gets in there and it's Cape Horn time, that's when he's really considering his time frame and all that. And it's just kind of interesting what he goes with, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So when he landed in uh, Wellington, he had two pounds with him. That's all the money. That was, that was his uh, bankroll for, for rolling in there. And he, he starts it off talking about a lucky telegram. Somebody gave him a telegram and was like, please let us know. Or I think it said, if you need money, just ask. And he just right back, he's like, yes, stop. Yes, indeed. Thank you. And uh, so he was a little bit covered there. But again, at all these places he's, he's so well known about, that essentially all these people want to help as much as they possibly can. So they're re revitalizing his boat, trying to fix whatever they can. But he's only there for about six weeks, um, and then he, he bounces right back out. And, yeah, like I said, January 30th, he sets back out and didn't really do much repair at all. The one shocking thing is he didn't repair that 40 gallon water tank, um, you know, between some of the other stuff, he says he has 160 liters of water and that's plenty for him. So I guess if you don't need to fix it and you don't want to don't do it, but, uh, that sounds a little crazy to me. I would, um, knowing how sometimes those things can fail and jugs can crack and all that sort of stuff. I would have, uh, I would have definitely put that on my priority list, but Hey, it's not, it's not me, but, um, yeah, he goes out and and pretty soon finds the weather to be super tame, very very calm, and he's he's his game plan is to sort of be right on the edge of the roaring 40s, you know, between 39 degrees south and 40 degrees south and kind of cut across uh, the entire Pacific because he's headed towards Valparaiso. He's not doing the dip down to go around Cape Horn in one shot. He's got one more stop before then. And and it, that was essentially the original plan, but uh, one day, he, one day he, he sees this huge shark, like a ten footer, start swimming right next to him, and he says, "You know, it was so close, I I couldn't help the urge, but to go and get my gun and shoot it." And I thought to myself, "Man, how times have changed!" Uh, and and in a good way, you know, there was that long held tradition of uh, you know you can't do anything to the sea because the sea is so vast you know there's that account of uh, Motissier emptying out Joshua down in the southern ocean to speed it up you know throwing batteries and paint and pretty much all these chemicals and things like that into the ocean and you know it was a different time obviously um, and sharks I know were were seen as just complete, uh, evil creatures only good shark was a dead shark all that sort of stuff they had no idea that these sort of apex predators were super valuable to the ecosystem and all that sort of stuff but i don't know i thought that was pretty funny that uh you know he's like oh i saw this huge shark and it's so close and then the next sentence is i couldn't help myself but go and get my gun and shoot it and uh hey you know, like I said, and I guess he, he got it square in the back and it just did a big dive and he never saw it again, but that was pretty much it. Um, but essentially, yeah, as as he's in those calm conditions, he's able to do some more repairs. He, he finally got to really inspect the crash uh, from hitting the, the piling and stuff, leaving the, the harbor and finds that, yeah, a, another plank has split. So he takes like an inner tube tire and he and he puts that down and then puts some paint and all the old timey sort of wood stuff and screws it all back down. And then he's like, yeah, we got it down. I still have to I still have to bail a half a bucket every two hours. And I'm assuming it's a five gallon bucket. So essentially he's taking on about a gallon per hour, um, just constant, constant stream. And wow. Ay, I just feel like that would be unacceptable. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm a glass boat kind of guy. You know, if you've got a hole in that, there's a serious issue. And uh, you can, you can, compared to a wood hull, you can definitely make that a fiberglass one pretty watertight, I guess. So standards, maybe. Maybe that's the only real um, difference. But then he goes and, and he's, he's 
kind of hears this noise and he comes up on deck and this is a couple weeks into it and still pretty calm conditions and all that sort of stuff. He's seen lots of whales and he comes up and he's got whales all around him and he's literally like touching one. The boat is sort of rammed up on it or something. And he kind of very quietly, cause he's just like me scared of whales. You don't like whales. I mean, you like seeing them at a distance, but I don't want to see him anywhere near the boat. Um, and he's, he's trying to like back the boat off quietly and nudge his way through. I guess he, he probably just sailed right into the middle of like a sleeping pod of whales or something like that. Cause he said they didn't react or anything like that. And you know, as soon as they were in his wake, he was, he was happy again, but pretty interesting. I, I definitely saw quite a few whales out there in the Pacific, um, you know, way, way out. And they just seemingly come out of absolutely nowhere. And I know there's a lot of the migration routes, you know, from going from like Tonga down to Antarctica and all these little little winter and summer getaways to go and chase the krill and the fish and all the food and stuff. So there's definitely got to be areas where they're more populated. But man, I, I tell you, you'd be just sitting up there. I remember this gray whale coming up one time that just came up, opened its eye, looked at me, blew its spout. Went right down below, never saw it again. Just instantaneous. And we were surrounded by these hail squalls at that point. Oh, my God. It was a dark, one of the coldest days uh, I had spent in the Southern Ocean. And we weren't even that far south, actually. It was kind of kind of interesting. But as he goes, you know, it's still calm. And he's making really slow progress for the first half of going across the Pacific. And he's he's sort of waxing on a bit about how, you know, the Pacific, the, the name Pacific is, you know, it's, it basically means like the calm ocean. And he's, he's seeing it how it had been seen many, many times before of just like, oh man, this is a placid big ocean. And he attributes it to the fact that it's huge, wide open space and there's no land. And, you know, the Atlantic and the Indian ocean, because of the Himalayas and all the different land masses that are, you know, globally around those oceans and Africa and everything that that messes with the constant flow of, of the normal winds. And in the Pacific, you don't get that. It's just a big blanket effect, which makes it a little more docile, I guess. I, I kind of, I don't know. I, I kind of disagree with that just because I've seen, I've seen and been through enough really bad patches of weather in the Pacific that, uh, and, and, you know, they talk about a Pacific cyclone. It's just like unbelievable. I mean, we have our hurricanes here in, in the Atlantic and the cyclones in the Pacific get absolutely massive. So I think the ocean world is inherently going to be always a little bit iffy. Um, and there's no, I don't think there's any like, standard stamp on it and and remember Vito's just using a, a a pilot book so essentially you know he doesn't have a computer he doesn't have weather reports or anything like that he's got a barometer and then he has essentially a compilation of hundreds of years of shipping knowledge and sailors sailing down there and condensing all their logbooks into averages so he can see in these you know gives you the whole pacific essentially and i've seen one of these old original ones they're really really cool um, but it's just broken up into a bunch of squares and it has all the little wind direction things and it gives you your percentage of you know how many days in 30 are you going to see gale force winds and all that sort of stuff and so that's kind of what he's going off remember it's it's super old school and um Really, really cool. Really, really cool. But he's he's feeling he's feeling the old uh, the old comms. But he's making his way, he's chipping away slowly, and um, he's actually having a lot of fun. He talks about how you know, gosh, oh my, I can do whatever I want. Like I can sleep whenever I want. He's eating really well. Um, all the effects from scurvy and everything were were kind of gone by the time he left Wellington, and I think he had brought more. I think he brought more provisions to try and um, alleviate that. I believe there was quite a bit of like little containers of like lemon juice or something like that that was given to him. But, you know, and he's feeling great. He's he's loving sort of just being out there. And, you know, regardless of the light winds and not making huge amounts of progress, when you're in those conditions and the ocean and everything is pretty docile, I mean, it's frustrating when you get becalmed for sure. 
But if you have light winds coming from the south, coming from the north, whatever, uh, and you're able to actually move, albeit slow, it the ocean is just beautiful. Like you, you know, he's always has that southwest predominant groundswell that's just always there in the Southern Ocean. Um, there's times out in the Atlantic where light winds and yeah it's a little hard to keep sparrow moving but the world around you is so calm and so friendly and it just feels great and you can do all these things on your boat that you normally can't now remember he's coming out of a, just a really really rough indian ocean crossing storms and cyclones and just awful awful rough conditions and now he's in this world of like peace and tranquility in a way, and it's it's shocking to him. And he writes a lot about it. He 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 he's taking his time, he's making these sort of elaborate meals out of rice and all this different stuff just to sort of I don't know, fill the time. And uh, unfortunately, you know, one day he's walking around on the deck and he falls through the open hatch. He had been, because the weather's so good, he's keeping his portholes open, air out the boats. I do that as well. It's definitely not a recommended thing, um, for sure. Not not very seamanship-like in, in a lot of ways to do that. But at the same time, if the conditions warrant it, yeah, I love having my portholes open, getting fresh air down in the cabin, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, he's got one of his hatches and he falls through it and uh, basically just racks his ribs. And he says that it partially collapsed one of his lungs. Um, he, he either broke or collapsed. He either broke or cracked uh, the bottom bunch of ribs on one side. And so now he's, you know, it's one of those things like everything's going so good. And then you do something like that. And for days and weeks, you're you're in pain. I don't know if anybody's. I've I've cracked a rib. I remember when I was a kid, the closest I've ever come to breaking any sort of bone, and I fell off of a top bunk while I was at a camp, um, and I landed on somebody's shoe. And to this day, well, two of my ribs are still a little bit uh, off off symmetry I guess when I when I look at them and uh, I just remember being in so much pain for so long it just hurts to breathe it hurts to stand and you know just when everything's going so good you're enjoying the Pacific enjoying the ocean life and then suddenly bang you, you know you screw up and those are the times where I I've done that plenty and you know you do it not not only at sea, but you do it in, in everyday life. And uh, I can remember a point in my life where I would get so mad at myself for doing some stupid thing or screwing up. And I just like, I was like beating myself up. And then somewhere along the line, and I don't know if it was something, uh, I think it had to have been something, one of the lessons taught to me out at sea where Essentially, I was like, dude, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you beating yourself up? Let's just move forward. Let's learn from that mistake and then just, just move forward. We don't need to sit here and, and keep screaming to the, the, uh, hori- the empty horizon like, you're such an idiot, Jerome. So, so dumb. And, you know, I try and take that with me uh, into the, the world of you know, the land out here too, just because, you know, every day you can, you can screw things up left, right, and center in every facet of life. And, uh, you can either beat yourself to death and make yourself feel real bad, or you can learn from the mistake and get over it and move forward. And, uh, I don't know, that's just something that I definitely try to do. It's not the easiest thing, but I try to try to keep that, that and it seems like he got over it pretty quick. He doesn't, he doesn't, again, he doesn't dwell on it uh, in his writing or anything like that. But yeah, so he goes through these comms and, and then he finally gets a, a little bit more good weather. He heads a little further north too. Um, and he's, he's just shocked that he's getting sunshine and, and the weather's good. But eventually he has a couple of couple of small gales, but he barely even mentions anything of it. He's like, yeah, the barometer starts to drop, and, uh, and now, boom, we're, we're, it's blowing. And there's one where it's blowing from the east. And I remember getting hit by some easterly gales down there. I still have on my, on my chart of the Pacific, you know, I'm leaving New Zealand, south of New Zealand. And I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Then I go a little bit north, and then I literally cut south and, and west for like a whole day and a half and then cut back. It looks like somebody took a bite out of uh, my my route or my rum line. And uh, 
Yeah, it's a bummer. And he did he did what I did. He uh he hove to and just waited it out and then as soon as things changed he uh he got underway again. But um yeah, he he just kind of keeps plugging away, plugging away and he's he's floating right around there 37 degrees south and all of a sudden it sort of jumps. Uh there there's really nothing said because I'll bet you Life was pretty much identical day after day after day, which it is down there. And it's it's really interesting when you're looking at when I had it, I had just my Pacific chart, which covered just uh, pretty much South Tasman all the way to Cape Horn. And it's a huge chart uh, and it's showing the whole ocean. And every day, every day that goes by, every noon sight you're doing, you're essentially maybe a centimeter on this chart and the charts, you know, three and a half feet long or something like that. And so it's, that was the chart that had the most mold on it, the most damage, uh, because it's just, it's mundane. You're, it's such a giant ocean. I think for him, um, and the route that he went, it was like 5,200 nautical miles or something like that. Now, had he gone a little bit further South and stayed the course just to go for Cape Horn and go right around, uh, that that distance would have been decreased pretty substantially. Um, probably take I don't know 700 miles off of it. That's just a guess. I and it, it all depends on how far south you really want to go. But because he's going to Valparaiso, which is a little further north, he's up there right on the edge of uh, the Roaring Forties. And yeah, essentially after 72 days, he sights some land and he's like, "Whoa, my gosh!" He can see it. And he's excited because it's his home continent. He he keeps referring it to it. He's like this is America, America. And you know he's going to Chile, but uh, and he's Argentinian. But for him, yeah, he's he's landing on well-known soil. And I think he has sailed out of Valparaiso before, and so it's sort of a homecoming in a way. And and obviously people will know who he is when he gets there and stuff. But it's kind of like he gets within like a hundred meters from land. Uh, from the coast and he's just totally flat becalmed and he can't move and he's like shouting at this little kid who's on some like fishing boat or something like that and he you know he's he for whatever reason the communication is not there he's like can you tell somebody to come out here and give me a tell but he ends up spending like another night out and he can see the lights of cars and he can hear the noises and obviously smell everything and all that sort of stuff and I remember that that pretty much happened to me outside of Gloucester. You know, you're alone for all this time. And then all of a sudden there's airplanes and there's the there's the skyline of Boston and there's boats and there's noises and dogs barking. And I, you know, I was like five miles off off the coast. Maybe there weren't dogs barking, but there were definitely noises. I'm sure it was uh, probably just boat traffic and air air traffic, but uh, it was rough. It was kind of bittersweet though. I think in the end, it's not actually a bad thing because all too often, some of these trips can end so quickly, so abruptly, you know, you're, you're coming in, you're coming in all of a sudden, uh, you know, had I been able to sail into Gloucester at, at 6 PM on day 270, um, yeah, it would have been over and done with so quickly. And, and all that sort of stuff. And I was granted, you know, essentially one more night, you know, alone on the boat. I, I did get quite a bit of sleep that night, but it was, uh, I don't know, it was kind of interesting to just bob around out there in front of the harbor and kind of just uh, take one last, one last glimpse before the adventure came to an end. But for Vito, he just wanted to get in there. So he he eventually got a tow and they came alongside and, you know, just like every other time, everybody comes on board and they're super excited to see him. They grab him. These two, uh, it was a naval, a naval tug or something like that that comes and gets them. And they essentially the two POs are like, all right, dude, let's go hit the town. And they just go bar hopping bar <laughs> like one after another, after another. And then it's like about three in the morning or something like that. And he wants to call it. And there's, the other two guys are like, well, there's two more of these bars that we want to go to. And he just kind of refuses and has them, you know, take them back to back to his boat. And then just as he's about to go to sleep, he these guys are like, oh, well, hey, you're going to have coffee before you go to bed. Right. And I'm just thinking to myself, what? No, I, mean, I want to go to sleep. 
So they let him, you know, he goes aboard their tug and they have a cup of coffee and then, you know, it's starting to get light out. And then I think he goes and sleeps for an hour and then they go in and, and bring the boat uh, in. And now he is, boom, he's right there. And he's spending six weeks in Valparaiso. And for the first time, after a few days, he actually hauls the boat out. Um, Cape Horn is on his mind. The chapter is called The Dead, Man, Dead Man's Row. Dead Man's Road, uh, pardon me. And yeah, essentially, Cape Horn is, is, is a scary thought for sure. Um, and I think especially back then, because so many people had died down there. And not that that's changed at all, uh, but it just, I think it had such an ominous sort of reputation and you know he even talks about he's he's as he's about ready to go um some of the people the well-wishers he realizes that a lot of them are thinking they're going to say goodbye to him for the last time because they're never going to see him again and i i had people actually mention that to me after i got back uh thankfully they were like dude i kind of wrote you off man i was i was pretty sure I was pretty sure you were not going to make it back. And uh, I was like, whoa, holy cow. I think I've mentioned that before. but So anyway, he's going full on trying to do some refit action. He's uh, getting lots of help again, so he's getting things replaced. Again, he's on his home home turf in, in a way, or at least closer to it. And so he's getting plenty of help. And, um, yeah, he plans on doing a full, full refit, get everything fixed up, and get ready for Cape Horn. And we'll pick back up. After I finish the the last of the passage, so just wait one second. All right, and we're back and we're finished. Oh my god! Let, let me just say real quick, what a great book! Absolutely amazing. Thank you. Big shout out to Peter, who uh, lent me this book. I will email you shortly and uh, get it back to you. It's uh, it's actually this book depending on exactly when he <clears throat> lent it to me, has done a couple of passages and survived a pretty vicious knockdown. And uh, I always kept it in with all the computer and technology stuff in the Pelican case, so it uh, doesn't have any mold on it or anything, which is great. So very, very cool. But uh, yeah, so basically this this last, this last leg from Valparaiso uh, around... Cape Horn and then back up to Buenos Aires is uh it's crazy um you know it's it's filled with all the fear and trepidation and as he's leaving Valparaiso he passes by this you know hulking five-masted schooner that's an old log ship carrier and they were trying to round Cape Horn and got battered uh and almost sank and ended up getting back to Valparaiso and it's been there for you know, a long time. He says it's like this dark sort of hulking mass. And he's just really worried. It's uh, one of those things. Uh, I think sometimes, and not just in the sailing world, but you can get this idea and these worries start to escalate in your brain. I know I would get it when, you know, you have a really bad forecast, you know, four or five days out, there's supposed to be a massive gale or something like that. And you're sitting there, you're worrying, you're worrying, and that builds up, and it it makes it so all of a sudden you're just ah, you're 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 all can't sleep, can't do anything. All you do is worry, and it, it creates all this anxiety. And obviously, heading to a place like Cape Horn uh, is is this is just eating him alive, and he's worried, but he's he's got to do it. He's he's so close, and he's he's up for the challenge of the impossible route. He wants to, he, he says that he wants to defeat it. And, um, so he, he heads out and his plan is to try and get away from the coast a little bit because there is that worry that you get hit by a severe westerly gale and then you just get brushed right up onto the, uh, onto Tierra del Fuego, a pretty unforgiving landscape up there. Oh, we got a phone call. I'm going to turn that off. Oh, it's old Murph. Huh? I'll have to give him a call later. Um, but essentially, yeah, so he heads out and he gets to sight barely, but he gets to sight one of uh, the most, I think, one of the coolest islands that are out in the ocean, and it's Juan Fernandez Island, and that's the one. It's also nicknamed the Robinson Caruso 
um, island because it was where uh, Selkirk ended up being stranded for I don't know how long. That's that's a story I need to revisit at some point because there's uh, it's just this like kind of rocky outcrop, and I think there's a few people that live on it, but not many, and a uh, tiny little place. But he only. He, he barely gets to sort of see it, but it is kind of exciting for him and stuff. Because, you know, Slocum had, had gone up there on his route and all that sort of stuff. And it was always a place that if I ever made it to that side of the world, that's an absolute must stop. Uh, Got to see that place for sure. I don't know. There's those, those far-flung islands, you know, Tristan de Cunha, the Snares, Campbell Island, Amsterdam, all these, these places that are so inaccessible. Uh, there's just something about them that just gets me, gets my gears turning and spinning on how the heck I could get out there and see them. You know, the one that I always wanted to see was Ducey Island and uh, Henderson Island. Those were the two islands that uh, the Essex guys, they, they ended up on Henderson. They thought they were on Ducey. Uh, Ducey Island looks like it's a little atoll. I always thought it'd be pretty cool to get Sparrow in there. Uninhabited little places, but I, I digress. Um yeah, essentially, he almost gets he, he gets into some ugly weather. It's not too bad, but the, the winds are coming up from the south, so he's beating into the wind because he's trying to get a little bit of room between him and the coast, but he's also got to get pretty far south. He's starting off at like 36, 37 degrees south uh, latitude, and Cape Horn sits at about 56, so he's got a, a good ways to go. And essentially... Um, He's beating into these heavy seas and choppy seas and all this sort of stuff, trying to eke his way away from the coast, but also get south. And he's just plunging this boat into wave after wave. And he takes one giant wave and ends up almost getting washed overboard. He's clinging on to the mizzenmast and just barely able to breathe. He said he thought he was going to suffocate because he was under so much water for such amount of time. And uh, it's pretty crazy, but he did... Makes it through that bit of bad weather, and he is pretty um, thankful because he had installed some semblance of a canvas dodger. And he said, you know, with with all the beating into the wind and the temperatures down at like five degrees Celsius, so it's cold. It's going to start, you know, snowing and stuff like that. And essentially, he the only place he can get any sort of reprieve from the constant spray and, and salt and wind and, and cold is is behind that little dodger so it sounds like uh he definitely made a, a good call on that i mean i know on sparrow that is my jam get behind that dodger and it just it's it's so weird because it's such a flimsy thing it's not actually going to protect you from anything more than spray but the fact that it does that absolutely amazing and it, it's um it's actually kind of crazy because when we were going to do this last trip uh from jacksonville to puerto rico that was one thing we were missing on the boat is it got taken off in one of the the storms earlier this season but was the dodger and you know it's kind of like yeah it can be done it's no big deal but boy a dodger really really makes life uh far more pleasant when the elements are are destined to soak you and and make you cold and you know, if that happens for days and weeks on end, it's pretty miserable. But he ends up finding another leak. Uh, I think he had fixed. He didn't mention anything about the leak coming up forward, but he there's one in the aft area, and he doesn't really know where it's coming from. He tries like as hard as he can to find it, and he can't find it. He's not too worried about it because it's only a dribble, but he is worried that, you know, there is a leak, and Again, it's going to start uh, if, it, if it gets really rough because he's, he's thinking, you know, he's headed towards the worst weather on the whole trip. And he's, the guy's already been through cyclones and storms, all this sort of stuff, gales, gales, gales. And, uh, you know, he's still thinking he's really in for it. And it's kind of funny because some of the people, there were people in Valparaiso that were like, hey, why don't you leave your logbooks here? That way, you know your whole struggle and this epic voyage and the tale of that won't be lost. So essentially what they're saying is, you know, chances are you're going to die, man. And you probably don't want to, you should leave the record. And he's just kind of like, what? And he, you know, keeps his log books obviously and uh, goes for it. But um, with this new leak, he's still taking on pretty much the same amount of water when things get pretty rough. And, uh, 
you know, he's he's making his way south and he gets some westerly wind. So he's able to crack off and just start gunning. Uh, and again, you know, a rounding of Cape Horn traditionally is 50 degrees south in one ocean around Cape Horn to 50 degrees south in the other ocean. He's got to go a little further than that. I think his total voyage is about 3,000 miles. Uh, 50 to 50 is usually, I think, about 2,000 total. But his, uh, as, he, as he makes his way further and further south, there's the island of Diego Ramirez. And that's usually what people sort of see first. It's a little bit west and a little bit south of Cape Horn. And one of the problems, I, don't, I can't remember if they had a light on it when I passed it. I was able to see it uh, during the daytime. Um, but he's worried about it. And he's, he's up there, so he's like barely leaving the uh the helm at all and he's he's got uh benzedrine sulfate which i'm uh, assuming is some sort of um you know like speed or caffeine pill or something like that because he's basically like i cannot sleep until we get around this thing and i get back into the atlantic and everything will be all good um but he he ends up you know chugging away the weather's bad but it's not that bad and he goes through some kind of calmer weather and then the the winds start to pick up as he as he approaches and coincidentally enough he passes just after midnight and essentially that's exactly what happened to me and by the time first light came he couldn't see it so he never saw Cape Horn I never saw Cape Horn and it's one of those things where it's kind of a bummer for sure, but it's also one of those places you can't linger. And so he just keeps on going and keeps on going. And, um, you know, he's he's not able to have many sun sites for navigation at this point. And down there, I mean, it's cloudy almost all the time. It's just crazy. And especially, he, you know, he's this is this is all going down in like June. So he's he's in the wintertime down there, essentially. And. Um, not able to take any nav sites, do any of that stuff. And he's getting worried because he wants to go basically get around Cape Horn. And then there's this little island called Staten Island. And then there's a bank up there that you kind of want to stick away from. I went right over it. Um, and then I went east of the Falklands because I was headed so far north. He wanted to go west of the Falklands and then head straight up from there because he's pretty much almost home free at that point and but he doesn't have you know his, his navigation isn't good he, he he can't get a sight and he's just doing dead reckoning and uh eventually you know he's he's able to sight a couple of the islands and he sees some of the trailing islands on the north west side and he knows he's free and clear of that and all of a sudden like the relief washes over him and he's just super super stoked um to just basically chug his way up. And as he gets closer and closer, uh, he starts to see some of the shoreline and stuff. And he was off on his navigation, a little bit upset. But at the same time, he's kind of like, well, you know what? Coastal sailing, here we come. And he even says, he's like, you know what? I decided to not go and make a little chocolate coffee thing that I that he always does. And he goes up for a, a spell of yachting with a fine cigar. So he's sitting in the cockpit watching, you know, I assume the, the coastline. Uh, passing by and he's he's making his way up there and um, essentially he gets to and it's which which one is it I have to look at this one more time because he makes a couple of different yeah Mar del Plata is is his destination to make a quick stop and he's only there I think for uh, like a day or two but that's going to be his his first little stop, and he gets up there and uh, essentially pulls in massive reception. These fishermen are out there, and they're actually looking for him. And he gets becalmed again, and sort of talks to them. And they they kind of just were like, "Hey, how's it going?" And then they bugger off. But then they come back because they realize who he was. And so he was like, "Yeah, is there any possibility of getting a you know a tow?" I don't want to trouble you. And the fishermen are like, yeah, oh, no worries. Then he's like, well, but you're going to lose a day of fishing. And they're like, we fish every day. The chance to tow you in after what you've done is the chance of a lifetime. So they tow him in. He has this big reception and uh, he still has to go. I mean, he's he's that's his first stop. But then he wants to go to Montevideo where he's got all the friends and stuff. Um, and then finally finish up in Buenos Aires. But 
essentially he ends up going and uh, in between after he leaves Montevideo and then is making his way up the coast, he's becalmed one of these nights and essentially gets too close to shore and he gets up on deck and he can hear the breakers, he can see them. Uh, he can see the sand dunes of some of the hills, and he grabs hold of the steering wheel there's, or the helm, and there's nothing he can do, and the boat just gets grabbed by these breakers. I had no idea any of this happened. And essentially, he gets beached. Boat, leg two, gone. It's on the beach, and he's struggling. All he's trying to do is, as these waves are pushing it further and further up, he's trying to, you know lighten the boat up so he gets all the stuff off of it and he's trying to get it as far up the beach away from the breaking waves as he can and he's just absolutely obviously completely distraught uh he can't believe what's happened but he's pulling you know he's he's working the boat as far up there as possible and finally gets it free of the water and then he's able to go and rally the troops and they they end up the only way they can get it off is with like a thousand meter tow you know, essentially almost like a mile of, of line and they call it the serpent because it's, it's some sort of line that won't, won't actually sink so they can actually get it to the beach. And I think there's a couple of big, big steamers or whatever that, that come out and they, they're able to yank the boat pretty much off clean and, and pretty easy. And he soon gets word cause he, he, he loads all his stuff into uh, a car and they're going to go meet, um, I believe, at Montevideo. And then they go, and essentially he gets word that there's been no there's no leakage. She's tight as a drum. It's all good. There's no damage from running aground and all that sort of stuff. And, and so he gets on board, and then uh, a few days later ends up, ends up pulling, into, uh, pulling into Buenos Aires uh, with a reception. There's a picture in the end of this book, a reception of it looks like Five, maybe 10,000 people, just thousands, huge, huge crowds. And he's just like overwhelmed with joy. He can't believe it. Uh, like he, he even says, he's like, I am literally the center of the universe right now. I mean, everybody, he's getting all sorts of letters and accolades and everybody wants him to do an interview and all this sort of stuff. Just absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I, I couldn't imagine what that would be like. I had a very small crowd in Gloucester that came down and they were mostly friends and family. And that was wonderful because it was intimate for sure. Uh, but it, you know, I do often wonder what it would have been like to, to come back to like a thousand people <laughs> would have been kind of neat but I mean this guy was the pioneer he was the first this was uh this was absolutely just an epic epic trip and yeah I just wanted to I mean it just is really it's really really great and here here's just a a bit from the actual uh like the numbers so to speak so this is like his second sort of big voyage the biggest voyage he does, obviously, uh, around the world, seven ports of call, uh, 20,420 miles in 272 days. Starts in, he departs Buenos Aires uh, on the 27th of June, 1942. Pulls into Montevideo, uh, 100, or no, pulls into Montevideo, which is right there, and uh, departs from there. And 55 days later, <clears throat> he ends up in Cape Town. No, that's not right. I don't understand what these... Okay, well, the leg from Montevideo to Cape Town is 4,200 miles. And then the Cape Town to Wellington, 7,400 miles. And then from Wellington... Did it do... Wellington to Valparaiso, 72 days... 5,200 miles, Valparaiso to Mar del Plata, 37 days, 3,200 miles, and then Mar del Plata to Montevideo, two days, 200 miles, Montevideo to Buenos Aires, one day, 110 miles. Absolutely amazing. And one of the funniest things, right in the end, he talks a little bit about the boat and the size of the boat and what he thinks, you know, worked really well. And it was kind of interesting. He said that he doesn't think on a boat that size, having a mast any higher than 30 feet above the water, uh, is safe. And, you know, he talks about 
the healing momentum and all that sort of stuff when you have a, a really tall mast. And he had experimented with taller masts on different boats and stuff. And just for a comparison, Sparrow, same size hull, almost identical. Um, that my mast is 45 feet above the waterline, I believe. And so quite a, quite a bit larger, but again, he has a mizzen mast and, and a main mast and I've just got the one. Um, but I think the funniest thing that I read in this, that little bit is he's, he's like, he's like, let me, let me just make a note about, uh, sea anchors. And he's like, He's like, I can't imagine ever even having room on my boat to store one. So obviously not a fan of those, uh, as he calls them, contraptions. And he goes on to talk a lot about the Norwegian style sort of canoe stern double ender and how good that is for heavy seas and when you're running with it. And essentially, yeah, he, he talks about, well, you know, it's if you can keep the speed on the boat, the stern is going to rise above those breaking waves and you're going to skitter off in front of them out of danger. And so it necessitates that, you know, you keep that speed up. So you have to keep sail up and that he never, you know, his mainsail didn't even have a reef point in it, which I couldn't believe. But that that is why then he was always going down to a jib and uh, uh, yeah, a jib or a staysail and then the mizzen. And then he would douse the the main when it got really, really rough. But I think... From what it sounds like, he ran with a heck of a lot of sail up all the time. He had short masts, overbuilt rigging, super, super strong boat. And, you know, that's that's how you can rip around the world like that in those rough, rough conditions. Now, obviously, we overbuilt Sparrow, and Sparrow's already an overbuilt boat. And I essentially tried to do the same. I was... <laughs> Definitely a lot more conservative, I would think, uh, as far as the sail plan I would have. But I found that. I, I do remember in the oh, the March, the mid-March gale in in uh, the Pacific, the one where the Volvo boat lost one of their crew. That that storm was was pretty ugly. And I learned my lesson because I, I had to go bare poles or not bare poles, but I had a I had a storm jib sheeted amidship, so essentially no sail trying to catch any wind, um, just that sail trying to act as a wind vane to keep the bow down, but essentially going bare poles almost in, in such high-velocity winds that I was able to still do five, six knots and every once in a while surf these waves. But as, that, as the wind backed off just enough, all of a sudden some of these big breakers were breaking onto Sparrow. And when they hit the cockpit, they fill the cockpit, but they hit those washboards and they would spray into the boat. And it was really, really bad. And the only thing I could do was put up a little bit of sail. And once I did that, the boat sped back up. But I mean, that night, things got wild. I ended up getting knocked over pretty hard. Um, pretty scary night for sure. And, you know, it is one of those things where no matter what you do, no matter what, sort of tactics you're taking and everything um every single wave is going to be different and you never know what's going to happen one minute to the next uh but one of the things that I think he Vito talks about is that he had he had trained for this he he had he had been out there he had done tons of voyages he had seen all sorts of weather and it wasn't a completely foolhardy thing for him to attempt to do because he had actually, you know, he put in the time and the effort. If there was anybody that was going to be able to do a trip like that, it was him and that boat and the skills that he had. And I think that's one of those things when we take on these challenges in life, you know, not just sailing, but anything in life that we're doing when we when we prepare for it, you know, if it's like a new job or starting a business or something like that, you know, you you have the amount of work and experience that you've already done before you set off. And that gives you it breeds a little bit of confidence. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen when you take the leap and take on a big challenge or anything like that. But when you do have say you're you're going into the banking industry and you went to college for business and finance and economics and all that stuff all those years of all that work are a huge part of of you being able to accept that challenge in 
kind of a smarter way, you know, knowing that, okay, you've got, you've put in the hours, you've put in the time and let's see if we can rise to this occasion and rise to this challenge. And yeah, I think uh, it's just an amazing story. Really, really fun to read. Like I said, it's a fast read and Wow, just so so cool. I just picture him out there and you know, he's e- he's eating lots of chocolates and he's got scurvy and he breaks his nose. Oh, I think I forgot to uh mention that. He breaks his nose. Um <laughs> past his Cape Horn at midnight and then he's sailing. Sorry, I can't I it's in my notes. Uh <laughs> he's he's down below and all of a sudden like I don't know, an odd wave hits him or whatever, throws the boat a little bit, and he just slams his face right into something and literally breaks his nose. There's blood everywhere. Uh, he's, he's just like, oh, my God, whatever. He cut his forehead. Uh, his eyes were okay, everything, but his nose was definitely broken. So he looked in the mirror. I think the next little calm patch comes in a day or two, and he looks in the mirror. He's just all bruised and disordered. I mean, if you've ever broken your nose or seen somebody who has, that's like black eyes and just, oh, it's it's an absolute mess. And uh, I'm sure that was not not a fun experience for him. So it was kind of like he got to pass Cape Horn and, and celebrate and do all that, but then uh, pretty quickly thereafter gets walloped. <laughs> so the sea has a way of testing you and breaking you down to next to nothing and then just giving you the slightest gift to sort of encourage you forward. Uh, but the sea can also give you those gifts and then smack you right down to oblivion if, uh, if it wants to. So something to always think about. All right. Well, that is it. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm, I hope everybody enjoyed this. Uh, I'd like to do more of these. I don't know. It's kind of strange. It's, it's, it's kind of like doing a book report in a way. Um, and I'm making notes and stuff. I'm sure I could do a whole lot better of trying to tell the tale and wind through this thing. But I figure, you know, I, just me being able to sort of relate some of my own experiences and, um, and sort of share the experiences of Vito Dumas, I think is, it was pretty cool. So I don't know if I find another book to do, do this, uh, sort of, thing on I will and uh, hope everybody enjoyed thanks for the support thanks for listening and until next time